Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 22, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. I am Rick. I'm author of The Jesus Centered Life and editor of The Jesus Centered Bible. The Becky Nader is about two and a half feet away from me. I think that's a general estimation. And um, I understand that last week while I was out... Um, trying, trying to graduate my daughter. And boys drooled. That all sort of shenanigans happened. Becky did, however, tell me that she and Steph Hilbury were going to tell jokes about me, but they decided not to. And her lame excuse was they were too tired to joke about me. How hard can it be to joke about me, Becky, that we it just, just puts you over serious. the top? We are so serious. <laughs> we were going to tell everybody some things that we learned about Rick. One... <laughs> I think you've already you already know this that Rick has admitted a couple of times now that he really has a secret wish to be a rock star. And then the other thing we found out is that he was the DJ for his fraternity and so we were going to make fun of him but then we decided not to and just focus on, you know, Jesus instead. I think there's a big difference between being a rock star and being a member of a rock and roll band. Oh, I see. I think there's a nuance there. Being a rock star implies that I would love to be a celebrity, which I do not okay. want. This but I would good... love to, I'd love to be like um I'd love to be like the edge in U two. And you want to be like the lead singer and guitar person, right? Not like the well, drummer they, in the back. No, I don't want to be the drummer. Yeah, that's what Drum, I thought. Drummers are drummers are weird. I'm just saying. <laughs> Our sound guy Adam is a drummer. Oh, he's out. <laughs> he's Adam leaving. Adam is leaving the Please room now. Oh us. no. I spoke too. I spoke too quickly, spoke too and quickly. in too much of a dramatic you, whisper. You clearly don't know enough about it <laughs> about these people. I would like to play lead guitar. I think that that is the way that you'd go, and then I would be a backing vocal. This is what I thought. Yeah. So, but that has nothing to do whatsoever with what we're talking about today. But I did want to tell you, uh, everybody, one thing that happened while I was gone that relates to the podcast. So a couple of podcasts ago, we took on one of the more difficult. Mud puddle stories about Jesus. Uh, mud puddle story is when you come up to the story and you're like, wow, I really don't get that. That just must be Jesus being Jesus. Let's just jump over that and just not think about it, really. That, you know, that's what Jesus does. So a mud puddle story about Jesus, maybe one of the, the primary ones is when he curses a fig tree on his way um, on his way to the cross. He comes upon this fig tree and it doesn't have figs, and he's and he basically says, no one will ever eat your figs from you again. So uh, I had thrown out to our small group um, last week. We we also pursued this story like we were detectives, and they I broke them into teams of three. So there were six teams of three pursuing that story, and I gave them uh, the freedom to use outside resources if they wanted to, but they had to come up with a plausible solution to why Jesus cursed the fig tree in 15 minutes in their team of three. And then I was going to write all six solutions on our whiteboard, and then the whole group was going to vote on the on their favorite one. And I said the winning group, I would mention their solution 
on the podcast. So here we go. You know, Robert is so excited right now to hear this. Well, there, I'm probably I, I would I would think all of the pigs would be excited. The pigs have been talking about this. Could, if you haven't might, joined, you might want to. Might I say they're oinking? <laughs> they're like, tell <laughs> well, me, that, Rick. That's tell terrible. Me. I'm not going to ever say that again. So, um, so here here's what one in the six the six solutions. So they 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 were kind of acting like CSI Centennial Colorado <laughs> and trying to figure out why Jesus would do this. And they, what actually happened was uh, remarkable. The group, the majority of the group, voted on a mix between two of the answers, answers three and four. Um, so here is the mix of answers three and four for those of you who are interested in the solution to why Jesus cursed the fig tree. So one group said, the group number three said, that uh, they, they looked back to the tree of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, and that there's no mention of what kind of fruit there is, but there is mention of fig leaves covering their nakedness afterwards. This is one of the things that the pigs wrote about. Yeah. And so what if the tree of good and evil was actually a fig tree, and it had some symbolic uh, symbolism relative to sin, when sin enters the world? And so their solution was that Jesus cursing the fig tree was cursing sin. He was, he, and he was on his way to breaking the back of sin on the cross, so he curses the symbol of sin. That's a really good explanation. It's very creative, don't you think, for a bunch of high schoolers? Yeah. And, yeah. and then that's number three, and, and but the, the group wanted a little mix of number four, too. So here's number four, that Jesus does everything with a purpose, um, and so he's trying to make a point for the disciples to remember by, by uh, cursing this fig tree and having it wither in front of them. So the, the tree is perfect, they said, but it has no fruit. Um, and the disciples are like, why doesn't it, uh, you know, the, the, this tree has no fruit, but Jesus is the fruit standing right in front of them. And they miss it again, that Jesus is the fruit. So their, their point was that, that this story is about the withered fig tree, but actually the, the, the real fruit is standing right in front of them. So, so the group liked a mix of these two answers uh, melded together. So like there that. you have it. Way to go, groups three and four. I think one of those groups demanded that I call them the FBI on the podcast. I don't know. They, they had some meaning for FBI, but it wasn't Federal Bureau of Investigation. But I've since forgotten what like that is. Like the FIG investigator. Or the Federal Bureau of... FIG. I don't know what we it is. We don't know. We don't know what it is, but we're not good at acronyms. That's not our generation. There you have it, teenagers who pursue Jesus with their whole heart. Um, there is hope for the world. So, when I was in college, really, the, the maybe the biggest book that people like me, like I would say, people that were quote unquote serious in their relationship with Jesus, the one book that everybody was reading in that kind of strata was called Celebration of Discipline. It was published the year before I graduated from high school. So it had a year or two to get really popular. It was mega popular back in the day. It's um, by Richard Foster, who's a Quaker pastor. And in the book, it, it's essentially a kind of reaching back to these ancient traditional spiritual disciplines in the church and kind of uh, refreshing them and ordering them in, in the book in a way that you can live your life by these disciplines. So he divided the book into three different kinds of disciplines, inward disciplines, which are things like meditation, prayer, fasting, and study, and then outward disciplines, which are simplicity, solitude, submission, and service, and what he calls corporate disciplines, things you do in community, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. So I think the appeal at the time was that 
essentially all of us wanted sort of a greater control over our growth. We wanted a challenging way to do things that would deepen our growth as followers of Jesus, and we're all hungry to grow, and we're frustrated when we can't or won't or don't grow. So what, are, what, are, what can we do that, that in our life that would produce the growth we're looking for? So here's the very first words of Celebration and Discipline in the, in the first chapter. I'm going to kind of skip over the introduction, but here's, here's what Richard Foster says in, in the very beginning of the first chapter of Celebration and Discipline. He says, "...superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem." The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. So here he's laying the groundwork for what he intends to do here. And this was like, you know, crack cocaine to young people following Jesus. We wanted to be the deep people that he's describing here, and he's saying here's a pathway to do it. So let's uh, let, we're going to listen to a couple of minutes of... Richard Foster describing why he wrote Celebration of Discipline. He's, uh, he's talking to uh, an interviewer named Kevin Halloran, who has his own podcast. This was done about four years ago, so Richard Foster's looking back on Celebration of Discipline and why he wrote it. So let's listen for a couple of minutes to, uh, as Richard Foster explains the heart behind why he wrote the book. Celebration of Discipline came out of a deep longing to help uh wonderful little group. It was the first church that I pastored. I I mean, a little church that in a way would sort of rank as a marginal failure on the ecclesiastical scoreboards. And yet, what a wonderful time. Uh, Hungry for God, desperately needing uh, help in growth, in grace. I was needing it too. I mean, I was fresh out of graduate school and And, uh, you know, I gave them everything I'd learned in the first three months and didn't do them any good, and I felt (laughs) I needed to learn a lot more myself. And so begin to study sort of instinctively. I kind of went back to the old writers because I felt that they really had something to teach us and uh, to watch their lives and their practice of disciplines of the spiritual life. Simple things like uh, prayer and study and meditation and service and solitude and guidance and simplicity and, and confession and celebration even, which was viewed as one of the most important of the Christian disciplines, that this was a way that they had of presenting themselves before God, as Paul puts it, as a living sacrifice. And, of course, the problem with living sacrifices is that they're always trying to crawl off the altar. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why they take a lifetime to be lived and offered. And so we learn to present ourselves. I mean, you know, this little individualized power pack that we call the human body, God has given us authority over it, and we choose to present it before God. And the disciplines are a simple way that we do that, and we learn to live. And that works its way not just in special times, you know, of a morning prayer experience or so on, but it's to be carried throughout the day so that we might learn the practice of the presence of God. 
All right. So one thing I forgot to mention is that this whole month, month of June, we're going to be focusing on different aspects of discipline. So we thought this is why we wanted to start with this classic book on discipline, Celebration of Discipline. So Becky, uh, just listening to that, what, what kind of stuck out to you in his explanation of the role of discipline in our life? Well, first of all, like uh, Rick mentioned, we are going to be focusing the month of June on discipline. But one of my one of the goals that I wanted for that is when we talk about discipline, it sounds not very fun. Um, so I want you to know <laughs> really? that I challenged our content team that we are going to tackle discipline in a really fun way. Um, so this episode, we're going to play around with some different ideas and throughout the whole month, um, we're not going to just be talking about discipline and everything that you shouldn't should be doing in art. Do you mean like when you say the word discipline, the music that would go well as a background to that is do 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 do. Maybe I maybe I shouldn't have gone do do. Also, it's the word we use when we say we're going to discipline our children when they're doing bad things. So it has some negative connotations, but we're gonna have we're gonna have fun with discipline this month. First of all, I I had a question that I wanted to pose out to to Rick. on the on uh, his his interview because he starts out and he says we went back to the old writers. Can you clarify a little bit what he meant by that? Yeah, Foster's talking about the kind of classic writers like uh, Saint Teresa of Avila and others who are the mystic writers, I guess you could call them. Um, so he's he's reaching back uh, from several hundred to many hundred years to writers who wrote sort of classically about how to. Um, practice discipline in your life. So that's the writers he's reaching back to. He's not talking about biblical writers there. That's what I wanted to clarify. You know, it's very enticing what he's talking about. I like how he used um, terms like simple practices um, and and how we went back to examining celebration and confession, um, that we were looking for ways of presenting ourselves before God, and, and that our hope was to become living sacrifices. I also thought it was funny that he said, problem is that living sacrifices are always trying to crawl off the altar from being sacrificed. And no wonder. I mean, it's interesting that even what you just said, Becky, about we're going to spend a month on discipline, and we kind of have to reframe it so that people don't get an immediate idea of what this is going to be like. So when you say playing with it and having a more lighthearted view of it, it's because we have this relationship with discipline that is charged with meaning behind it. And even when we listen to Foster talk about this stuff here and the living sacrifice wants to crawl off the table, it just sounds so daunting and dangerous and painful and scary and all of these things that, um, for, for me, having read this book, and I've read it multiple times, and it, it did have a big impact on me back in the, back in the day, but I've had to ask myself, um, why was that book so popular? Why was I so drawn to it? And how do I feel differently about all of that today, you know, 30 years later, than I did then? And I think what drew me to it, uh, I think I mentioned this at the beginning, is we're all longing for a way to grow. We long to grow just naturally, and and uh, growth is a messy affair, and, and uh, we're looking for ways that will help with that process. And, and along comes this book that says, if you work these 10 or 12 disciplines, you'll get the growth you need, because look, these, these, these classic masters of history practiced these disciplines, and they grew. So um, it, it kind of promised to give you the kind of the tool you need to grow, and I guess I, today I look with some skepticism 
on all of this, not because there's something inherently wrong with spiritual disciplines, but I think we get it wrong when we approach spiritual disciplines, and a lot of the students that I was around at that time got it wrong. They thought the, the way forward was to muster up the kind of discipline you would need to practice all of these things in your life so you could get the growth outcome you were looking for, and, and that we were up for it. We were young, we had plenty of energy, we had not yet failed miserably over and over and over, which that's what adulthood does to you. Um, so we thought, you know, kind of innocently, let's do this thing. And that, that's the kind of the, the feeling that I had back then. There, there is some heart of, of it that is, you know, it, what, is the, what is the goal behind what you're trying to achieve? So if the goal is you've experienced a taste of Jesus and it was so delightful that all you want is to put yourself in a position where you taste more and more of Jesus, that's a different uh, that's a different desire when you're talking about discipline. The way that you were just describing it, I felt like you were describing it in such a way that what they were trying to do was th- they were trying to achieve some sort of perfection or overcome some sort of challenge in their life that they were experiencing that they kept coming back to and that they wanted to come up with a formula that would just rid them of that. Well, and and it can it can sound it can sound overly hard to say these things, but the truth is, as the people of God, we would much prefer to rely upon our own discipline than to rely upon our dependence on Jesus. We would much prefer it. It feels better. We feel better about ourselves. Nobody likes feeling weak, and weakness is what drives us to Jesus. We like feeling strong, and the more disciplined, the better. The the insidious little problem with this is that we can't do anything apart from our attachment to Jesus. He said so in the bluntest terms possible. So everything that we do that causes us to be less dependent on Jesus is not a good thing. So, man, what do you do with discipline then? What do you do with personal effort? I think this is one of the things that um, definitely, since I wrote The Jesus-Centered Life, is the, is the, pro- the primary sticking point that people have when they read my book, because there, it, it appears sometimes that I'm saying, hey, it, the branch attaches itself to the vine, the vine's life comes up into the branch and produces fruit. It appears like I'm, I'm saying, well, we don't have to do anything. Our effort isn't at all a part of this, it's all Jesus. And I, it's not a careful reading of the book when people come to that conclusion. I think uh, some of the language I use makes them think this is what I'm saying, that there's no effort involved with us. But actually, it's a, it's a book about what, what it looks like when we partner with Jesus, when He does things and we do, th- and we do things, and we do it in partnership together. And the, the reason why I think um, the typical way we think of discipline is off is it's an outside-in kind of momentum. If I discipline myself, I will get intimacy with Jesus, when actually what Jesus is asking us to do is to sink into Him, to, to develop an intimacy in our relationship with Him, and our discipline flows out of that intimacy. It's just two different ways of finding your discipline, and I believe the outside-in way, the way a lot of people follow, has the side effect of leaving you, at least for a short time, <laughs> the feeling that you don't need Jesus, really. There's no reason to depend on Him. So I, what I'd like to do is explore what Paul, the Apostle Paul, has to say about discipline. 
And we're going to do this in an interesting way, and then Becky and I will talk about these two passages. I've, uh, Paul, Paul was a very disciplined person, just in general. I mean, he, uh, this is the guy Jesus tapped to help found the Church around the world, and he had many, many talents. He was maybe one of the most highly educated people in the world at the time, and he was quite skilled as a speaker and a teacher and a writer and an apologist, an evangelist, a debater. He was, he was sharp, and he was quite disciplined about all of these things. And it shows up in how Paul wrote when he would write a letter to the early Jesus followers and try to help guide and coach them into this life. He had a lot to say about discipline, but what we're going to do is we're going to read a passage from 1 Corinthians 9, and then we're going to read a passage from Colossians 2. 1 Corinthians 9 was written about five years after Paul started writing letters to churches, so it's pretty early on in his trajectory. And then Colossians is written five years after that. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians, and then we'll read something he wrote five years later. And I want us to pay attention to the way that he sees discipline in this five-year gap. So the first section is from the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It starts in verse 24. I'll read that. Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs? but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I might be disqualified. So here... Paul is comparing spiritual disciplines to physical discipline, and he's saying, do more of that. Um, Come on, get going, discipline yourself. Um, So now we're going to read from Colossians 2, and uh, uh, we're going to start in verse 6, and in my Bible, in our uh, New Living Translation from the Jesus-Centered Bible, the the heading over this section is, is called Freedom from Rules and New Life in Christ. So it's interesting in the in light of this guy who's very disciplined and he's just urged the Corinthians to be even more disciplined. Now let's see five years later what he thinks about discipline. So here's how it starts. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Just got to stop there for a second. He's talking about your roots growing down into Jesus, and then you will grow strong in these truths you were taught, and out of that you will overflow with life and thankfulness. So he continues, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world, rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were, quote-unquote, circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature, For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God 
who raised Christ from the dead. We keep hanging in here with him. He's, he's, he's talking through what this role of our effort versus the, the effort Jesus accomplishes through us when we're attached to him. So he continues in verse 13. You were dead because of your sins, and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules, these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. And now he, he, he adds his exclamation mark. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. There's his treatise. I'm just going to loop back after he says this at the end, these things, these, these ways that we have of disciplining ourselves and following the rules and making sure we're on track. He says they provide no help in conquering our, our evil desires. Why? Because back uh, a little bit before this, he says their sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body because he holds everything together, and that body grows as God nourishes it. So what Paul, I think, has learned in these five years of his great discipline, his great natural discipline, is he hasn't thrown it out the window, but he's recognized what must come first, that what must come first is our abiding attachment to Jesus, who nourishes us with his life and fuels our ability to, to be disciplined in our life. And he's warning us about getting an outside-in approach to this, where um, we, we focus on the disciplines and the rules and the principles that we're trying to keep, and what we do by focusing on these things is we detach ourselves from Jesus. So I'm wondering, Becky, you know, there I've spouted some of the things that I see in this, this comparison. What did you notice? Well, first of all, in the in the First Corinthians verse, this kind of goes back to a few podcasts that we've done. We talk about um, with Sarah Bessie. Oh, it was probably a couple months ago that we did an interview with her about freedom. And so, before this verse, Paul was actually talking to them about the reason why I discipline myself is because I'm free, and I my only goal is to set other people free. So he's talking about 
when I live with, um, when, when I'm with Jews, I practice their customs. When I'm with Gentiles, I practice their customs. And so then he goes into, um, I'm so glad that we have this because what we're doing is we're, because we're free, we're going to discipline ourselves further so that we can set other people free. Um, and, and that's a, that's a totally different mindset than I'm, I'm going to make perfection for myself. It's a, it's an other centered focus, Mm. um, instead of just a self-centered focus, which a lot of times, and we talked about this in Jesus is the worst self-help guru ever, which was our most controversial podcast, by the way. Um, that, uh, we are not here to achieve perfection. Um, we're not here to go to the self-help aisle and by ourselves achieve some sort of, um, otherworldly perfection in, in Jesus. We're here because we are set free already. We're already set free and we're here to set other people free in partnership with the Holy Spirit. So. Yeah. So, and, and the, and the, the fine point to make on this again is, there's nothing wrong with strength. We, we want strength. We, we've been given a role in the kingdom that requires strength. And we want to be, you know, and when you talk about being freed captives, we want to be free, to be exactly who he's created us to be, to live out the gifts he's given us to give, to risk boldly those gifts and invest them with risk for the sake of the kingdom. We want all of these things. The difference is that we've as a kind of as a, a church culture, I guess you could call it, we've devolved into this place where the people of God always go in their rhythm over the space of time, which is, you know, um, I'm getting kind of tired of weakness and dependence. I want to feel strong and self-sufficient. In fact, I'm an American, <laughs> and there's nothing more American than self-sufficiency. And this is the poison, the toxin that has seeped into our relationship with Jesus, and we, we just, because it happens slowly, we miss the impact that this has on us. So self-sufficiency is not our path, and it is not the path that Jesus has us on. Dependence on him is the path he has us on, and through that dependence, strength and life come through us and have great impact in the world. But we, it doesn't mean that we lose ourselves in this process. We're blown up like a balloon. <laughs> I mean, in our own strength, we have no air in us. We're just a limp balloon. What Jesus is saying is, let me uh, give my life to you and blow up your balloon <laughs> so that you have something in you to give. So when we talk about discipline and what aspect of this is dependent on our effort, I think this is really where the key is, and I was just talking to a friend of mine, a guy friend of mine, um, and he he had mentioned something that uh, is very familiar to me. I've never done this, but I've heard about it a lot from a lot of different Christian men who are trying to live a more disciplined life. So he was in a group of men who decided together that there were there are some practices that they should be doing in their marriages to um, deepen their intimacy and fidelity in their marriage. And so they created a list of things to do that they basically all agreed we should all be doing these things. So for an example, like having a date night every week, a, a set aside date night every week. So what this group of men did was they all had the same checklist, and every week they would check in with uh, the leader of their group 
and tell them their score for that week. How many of those things did they complete that week um, as a way of trying to build a deeper, better marriage? And my friend said he made it about three weeks and he had to drop out. And it wasn't because he's an undisciplined person, but it's, it's because he sensed something deeply wrong about this well-intentioned thing they were doing. And the deeply wrong thing was, what if the wives of these men found out that they were actually scoring their discipline with them? Their intimacy. Yeah. Would that make a difference to them? Of course it would make a difference to their wives, because a wife longs to be uh, pursued from a place of, of heart and passion, not from a place of checkboxes. Like, I checked that box, I, um, I, I'm getting it done. I, uh, men gravitate, uh, in particular, to discipline over intimacy, because they can do discipline, and intimacy is, is really scary. But the one thing a spouse really wants is uh, an intimacy that is pursued on purpose. And I know this is a challenge for me and every man I know, um, because intimacy, again, and vulnerability is, is scary. But a checkbox is something you can accomplish. I mean, I, I got that job done, man. Um, but it does not capture the heart of, of the wife. I think this, this example of our friend who is doing this um, with, with his marriage is the same way that we as Christians have a tendency to check off our relationship with Jesus. So I went to my small group, check. I went to church on Sunday, check. I did my quiet time five and a half times this week, check, check, check. And the same way a wife would feel like, really? Aren't I graded on enough things in my life just by being a woman? (laughs) Now my husband's going to grade this too. I think that Jesus is sitting up there going, just longing for us to give up the checklist and to just lean in to a deeper relationship with him. And one of the things that I wrote down as we were talking through this was, what if your, what if discipline felt more like a vacation? What if it was instead of having to create a system or a program that required a great amount of discipline what if and 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 you've dreaded it and you had to be super prepared and you had to have everything in a row what if instead it felt like a longing desire to get away um, and to just be on vacation and to just experience a retreat and what if that's the way that we tackled our relationship with Jesus and if that's the way we tackled discipline it's interesting because it, it reminds me of um something that that happened to me last week so I I was in the middle of all this grad party planning and had two graduations, one from high school, one from middle school. I had one of my daughters leaving the day after graduation to go staff uh, staff training at uh, Camp Barnabas, which is a camp for um, uh, special needs adults. And so it was a whirlwind week. And it, have you had those days where you're walking around and you, you recognize that you're kind of in a reactive, detached place? Like you feel scattered inside and a little bit lost and anxious and stressed because of what you have to do, but it's kind of a deeper anxiety and stress. You recognize you're sort of floating alone in your little boat in the ocean, and, and it's all up to you, and you don't know how you got yourself into this place, but you sure feel lonely and disconnected. Well, I had one of those moments, and I, I recognized what I was feeling— and to, this is to get at your kind of vacation mentality here, Becky. I recognized what I was feeling, 
And then I recognized innately, oh, I need to reconnect with Jesus. I'm disconnected from him. The reason I'm alone, like that one sheep in his parable of the 99 and one sheep, the 99 are sitting there grazing on the hill, but there's one caught in the brambles. Well, I was the one caught in the brambles. And what does that sheep most need? They need their shepherd to discover them again, to release them from the brambles. And so I innately knew that in that moment that the best thing for me to do would be to stop, sit down in a quiet place, put my Bible on my lap, and simply ask Jesus, what do you have to say to me? I can't tell you the number of times this same thing happens to me, where I'm aware of my scatteredness inside and the sense that I am disconnected or detached from my source of life. And so I'm able to acknowledge it, stop for a moment, sit, and I don't pray. I don't tell Jesus what I want or what I need. I ask him first, Jesus, what do I need to hear right now from you? What is it you need me to hear? Sometimes I sense him speaking directly to me. Sometimes he'll guide me to some place in the Bible that he wants me to look at because he wants me to camp on what he's trying to say to me. But in any case, it's not long before I once again feel reconnected to him. And it's amazing that my level of stress and anxiety and scatteredness, I still have the same challenges in front of me, but I'm approaching them from a totally different vantage point, and I have life coming into me instead of the fear that I won't be enough to handle whatever I have. I can relax a little more once I'm reconnected to him. So in that sense, I I think we can say, uh, as I was talking to my friend about all this and why he got out after three weeks, I think he sensed inside. He has the Spirit of Jesus living in him. I think the Spirit of Jesus was agitating in him and saying, this is not the kind of intimacy or the way to get it that I hope for with you and your wife or you and me. This is not the path that I created you for. I created you for something much more organic, risky, and intimate. So let's go that path instead. It's a more dangerous path, for sure. I mean, you can if you can check off boxes instead of relating to someone, that's certainly uh, you know more safe to do it that way, but it's not it's not the kind of relationship that Jesus said over and over again he wanted with us. So I think a way to look at uh, disciplines, no matter what they are, is they can serve like training wheels for us. Like if if you want to come to know the heart of Jesus more, and you really long for that kind of growth, and you believe spending 15 minutes every morning reading uh, the Bible and, and studying the heart of Jesus will help you to do that, so you're going to discipline yourself to spend 15 minutes every morning, no matter what, doing that. You, you might think of those as training wheels on your bike, and you put the training wheels on and you, you start riding your bike, but at some point, um, it's time to take the training wheels off. We don't want to ride a bike the rest of our lives that has training wheels on it. We want to live out of our heart, not out of a checkbox of disciplines, because that makes for a pretty shallow relationship. So the end game is to ride the bike, not to keep the training wheels on. And the discipline, the discipline that we need then, if we take the training wheels off, if you hang with this metaphor for a second, then our life spills into us because of our attachment to Jesus, and those same disciplines, the ones that we were doing in kind of an outside-in way, 
now they, they're simply expressions of the life that's filling us up from the inside out. So we practice these things out of joy rather than out of gritting our teeth and, and you know, I can muscle my way through this. This is the joy of the vacation then, where you have a life, the life of Jesus filling you up and expressing itself in things that look like disciplines, like study and prayer and service. All of these things become a joy and outgrowth of that life rather than a way to build your intimacy with Him. I hope that makes sense. So you're looking very thoughtful over there, Becky. Is there anything that uh, I just said that made you... No, it was very good. Oh. Very good. All right. I was taking notes. All right. Well, so here's here's a way, of, I think, of maybe um, understanding this whole process. So um, I think instead of discipline, this process looks a lot like the one I just described, um, where you become aware of your detachedness from Jesus, um, and our inclination is to, is to gain more discipline to get us back to the place we want. What if instead we realize, I'm feeling scattered and detached, what if we first reattach? What if we stop, acknowledge what we're feeling, and then put ourselves in a place where we become dependent sheep again? Hey, Jesus, I'm stuck in the brambles. Hey, there are 99 people are over there on the hillside, but I'm over here. Can you come help me? Can you come rescue me? Can you come pursue me? And we stop and do that first, so that we reattach ourselves to him, our source of life. So I'm, I'm having a bunch of—I'm um, having several people, actually, uh, do what I call micro-journaling for a, a book that I'm writing now, right now called Spiritual Grit. And every morning I send these people a little prompt and ask them to write a few sentences in response to the prompt. And one I sent recently was, uh, what, what does it feel like to be weak? And what, what, is it, what does it feel like when you are living in a way that where your strength is coming from yourself rather than from Jesus? What, how do you know when that's happening in you? It was interesting that you could have almost interchanged their responses because, the, because my little micro-journalers said, I feel stress and anxiety. I really resonated with that. So the stress and anxiety are a diagnostic for, I've become detached from my source of life. And if our response is to buckle down and become more disciplined, this is the very path Jesus is asking us not to take, because it's a self-sufficiency path. If my response instead to my stress and anxiety is, wow, I need to reattach myself to Jesus. I need to sit and listen to what He has to say to me, and come into intimacy again with Him. So, what do we do when we become aware that we are stressed or anxious or scattered and reactive? Do we acknowledge those feelings, or do we ignore them? That's the key question. Do we divert our attention from what's clearly happening in us, or do we admit, yeah, this is true, I feel detached and scattered? Well, and how do you know? I mean, so in our weakness, we find strength. And if anxiety is a symptom of feeling weak, um, I think, you know, just the topic of anxiety is such a huge topic right now. So many kids, kids, little kids, elementary age kids, even toddlers are saying are starting to experience heightened amounts of anxiety. Um, and part of that is just our culture and technology and just all of the pressures. 
that we have all around us that the parents are experiencing anxiety. So the kids feel it because they can feel what their parents are feeling. So if, you know, I saw somebody write on Instagram just yesterday, she was saying, you know, put in, put anxiety down. Don't, don't be anxious. You know, if you recognize it in the name of Jesus, you know, tell it to go away. And I feel like for a lot of people who've, who've struggled with some very intense anxiety, that's not a very helpful message. Um, and so touch on that a little bit, Rick, like how do you, so if, if, if anxiety is a symptom of weakness and in our weakness, we find strength, how do people who are undergoing intense anxiety right now find their way through that? Well, the feeling of weakness is as much as we hate it. And, you know, we should all admit it. We, we absolutely hate feeling weak. I do, you do, everybody does. Um, but in our weakness, we are also in the place where we are most apt to depend upon Jesus, to reattach to him, because we need him in an obvious way. That's why our strengths kind of work against that sometimes, because we have this subtle belief that we can exist without God, we can be our own gods. And we never feel that feeling more strongly than when we are operating in strength out of our own discipline. So. Guaranteed, though, that the strength of our own discipline will not last. It has an Achilles heel, and it's just a matter of time before that thing is toppled um, or becomes a god, one of the two, which then self-destructs from the inside out. So this sense of weakness and anxiety is a diagnostic, is what I'm saying. It's saying, hey, pay attention to what's going on inside of you right now. If you feel stress and anxiety and weakness, pay attention. And the movement then is, once you've been honest with yourself about that, do you know what you have to do? For me, it's clear what I have to do. It, it's not a discipline then. It's, oh, I need to reattach myself. I need to stop for a second and re-remember my relationship with Jesus. I need to re-approach him and ask him to enter into my reality and reattach me to him. So that's what I do. Um, and so th- th- you can call that a discipline if you want to. It might even look like it from the outside in. Oh, there's Rick with his Bible on his lap, praying and reading the Bible. That looks like a discipline. It's actually the only functional, pragmatic thing I can do in that moment to reconnect myself to Jesus. It's not a discipline. It's a desperate thing. It's a movement out of, I have to do this in order to reconnect. And once you acknowledge where you're at, and what you need, then then all you're doing is then following through on the momentum that has started in you. So let to end this today, let's let's talk a little bit about what can help us reattach or reconnect with Jesus. So what are some ways to do that? Um, here here's some ways that I uh, just brainstorm off the top of my head, and then Becky, I, uh, please weigh in here. So it, you know, uh, ways that we can help that help ourselves reattach to Jesus again. A good devotional book can help you do that. It can help you recenter your focus and bring up questions or pursuits that that reconnect you to Jesus. A good book can do that as well. Um, I have to say, good books are harder and harder to find. I hope that doesn't sound terrible, but uh, for me, good books are harder and harder to find. A lot of the books that are produced today are uh, books uh, written by people who believe uh, at their core that trying harder to be better is the path. So those books are not nourishing to me, and they will only increase your stress and anxiety because they only feed your self-sufficiency. So a good book 
will reattach you to Jesus when you're reading it. I really love listening to worship music, um, and particularly I will just put on worship music and maybe write or maybe cook or maybe walk. I like to kind of multitask my time, but I I really feel a deep connection to just the whole idea of rest and Sabbath when I'm in my kitchen, just kind of making something for fun, not because I have to, but just kind of getting um, my whole body back in a rest and, and having time to think and work with my hands. Um, I also am a big journaler. I really, I just, I feel like I can't really understand what I think in my head unless I write it down. So I journal a whole lot. Um, so those are ways. I also, I love to read and I actually, I, I like to read um, people's stories. So they don't necessarily even have to be like in the Christian section of the book. I just finished reading The Lilac Girls, which is the true story of three women who survived during World War II in, in, in separate places. And it's, it's a very moving, true story. And I actually, I saw Jesus through a lot of it, even though most of it was very sad um, and hard to, to, to read. So those are ways. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned about uh, just kind of some alone time, whether you're cooking or doing something else. I would call that for myself a good stretch of silence, where if your life is full of responsibilities and voices and demands and challenges and expectations and conversations, and you don't have gap times where moments of silence to reconnect, you can get into a scattered, jittery place pretty quickly. So finding those, those little stretches of silence where you can take a deep soul breath and and again, like that sheep caught in the brambles, say, Jesus, I need you to pursue me now. What do you need me to know? Those are vital. I love a good walk in nature, out, out in God's creation, that he created nature as a gift to us to help draw us back to him. Um, and so that that helps me. And I have a friend who says he just uh, he needs sit-in-it time, where he's if he's struggling, he just needs to stop and sit in it for a little bit to kind of clarify what's going on in him so that he can reconnect with Jesus once he's acknowledged what's going on in him. And you know, a good conversation with someone who you can be really genuine with also can reconnect you, um, can remind you of what the truth is about, as long as that conversation is a real and genuine and um, leaning into Jesus kind of conversation, it can have that impact on you. So... I think, just to kind of sum up, to treat disciplines as a way to remember your first love. The point is to reconnect, not to find a way to be self-sufficient. So once you get connected again, you can find the sufficiency that you really need. That's the point. So we want to encourage you to, um, to do something different, to change your relationship with discipline and change it from an outside-in kind of uh, strategy to an inside-out strategy. Connect first, get his life, then those disciplines become natural outgrowths or expressions of that life going through you. Try this difference. Flip this, flip this from what you're used to and what you're used to being taught, and attach first, and then live out the disciplines later. So we, we also, uh, these various methods we've just mentioned, Becky, we, we have a heart for helping you reconnect with Jesus. So we have devotions that we've created just for that uh, impact. The Jesus-centered Bible is constructed to kind of 
as you're reading the Bible, to, to draw you into intimacy with Jesus. It's not just to study the Bible, it's to help you to see and taste and his heart and to eat and drink him. We have books like The Jesus-Centered Life and a book coming up, it's called The Unreasonable Jesus as well. It's, it's kind of devotional in nature as well. So this is all we do. We, we just produce things that help you get reconnected to Jesus. That's our heart. So we'll put some links on, on the bottom of this podcast if you want to check out some of those. And Becky has been sending out to those of you who signed up to be on our email list. You don't have to check the links at the bottom. We'll just send you the things that we're talking about so that you will give you a link to them so that you, you can check them out yourself without having to worry about trying to find them. So anyway, and one other way to, when we talk about having a good conversation that can reconnect you with Jesus and even silent time or walk in nature, you can get all those things at the upcoming Simply Jesus gathering here in the Colorado mountains put on by our good friend and Jesus crazy guy, Carl Madeiras. Wow, th- this is such an, a one-of-a-kind, unique event. Um, yeah, and we're about eight weeks away now, so maybe even less. So if there's already a few pigs that have signed up to go um, with us to the Simply Jesus Gathering. It's going to be up in the Colorado mountains. So if you're planning on doing that, would you just message me on Facebook and let us know? If we have enough people coming, we'll arrange for some transportation and, and some extra special stuff. So uh, And be sure to register, because I think they're going to run out of um, space soon too, so simplyjesusgathering.com. All right, thanks for listening. Um, Also remember, you can find out more information about the things we talked about here today, but in further detail, on the jesuscenteredlife.com page, find our podcast section, and you're looking for Season 2, Episode 22. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcast, and we'll talk again next week. See you then. Bye.